At Freedom HealthWorks, we're focused on putting medical professionals back in control of their practices. Utilizing a structured, tailored approach to business, startup, and operations, it could make sense for you to work with our professional team to avoid expensive pitfalls and, more importantly, expedite your journey to success. As we all know, time is money. If you're involved in the practice of medicine and desire to practice free of headaches and constraints, reach out for a no-obligation consultative conversation. Call us today at 317-804-1203 or visit freedomhealthworks.com. Welcome to Healthcare Americana, coming to you from the Freedom Doc Studios. I am your host, Christopher Habig, CEO and co-founder of Freedom HealthWorks. This is a podcast for the 99% of people who get care in America. We talk to innovative clinicians, policymakers, patients, caregivers, executives, and advocates who are fed up with the status quo and have a desire to change it. We take you behind the scenes with people across America that are putting patients first and restoring trust in American healthcare. Today, we are talking to Benjamin Lightburn, co-founder and CEO of Filament Health, the world's leading natural psychedelics company. Now, I know that's a lot right there, and I'm excited about this episode because it's just something that I don't have a lot of familiarity with. I've heard that you know there's a lot of things that can be beneficial but there's a lot of stigma behind it as well. And obviously here in the U.S., there are states that are saying, you know what, this is a good thing. We're going to go ahead and we're going to legalize it. And there's other states saying, you know what, that's going to stay on the banned list. But instead of hearing these things from me, who's an absolute novice when it comes to this particular subject, Benjamin, thank you for joining us here on Healthcare Americana. I think audience can be better off hearing it from you. Well, it's a pleasure to be on. Thank you so much for having me. I will certainly endeavor to do my best. That's all we ask here. So, okay, here we go. Introduction. I mentioned the world's leading natural psychedelics company. What does that mean? What that means is that we're in the business of creating psychedelic drugs, which are derived from natural sources. It may be interesting to know that, you know, all of this kind of resurgence in research and even the old school research that was done back in the 50s and 60s on psychedelics, all of that was done with synthetically manufactured uh, psychedelic drugs, different to the ones that are found in nature, which is where actually humans uh, discovered them in, in the first place. People often ask, them, what's the point of making things naturally when you can make them through chemical synthesis? And the quickest and easiest answer is simply that, well, people, consumers in pretty much every industry prefer natural products, right? They prefer natural caffeine rather than synthetic caffeine. They prefer natural food colorings rather than synthetic food colorings and et cetera, et cetera. So we believe that consumers of an eventual psychedelics market, whatever, whatever form that takes, will prefer natural products. There are also functional benefits, however, too. And that comes from the fact that when you make a natural extract of, say, a magic mushroom, you're actually extracting much more than just psilocybin, which is the primary active compound. As it turns out, in magic mushrooms, just as there is in cannabis and in coffee beans and in wine and everything like that, there's a, a multitude of active compounds which are interesting in terms of their effects in the human body. People might be familiar with the fact that, well, different strains of cannabis uh, produce different effects. You know, one makes you sleepy or one makes you active. Same thing is true for magic mushrooms. Our drug candidates, since they're extracted from natural mushrooms, 
actually preserve the content and ratio of all of the secondary compounds along with the primary compound in order to try to reproduce that natural effect that you get if you were to consume a natural substance. And I appreciate that, uh, especially driving down in the chemistry of it with the psilocybin. And, and those are kind of terms that, that you know most people I feel like are familiar with. So when we talk about you know natural psychedelics, are these by and large like you mentioned, the magic mushrooms. Are these mushrooms? So magic mushrooms and psilocybin is are probably the most well-known for sure. But there are over 100 species of psilocybin-containing mushrooms. Uh, and there are hundreds more of other plant species containing other psychedelic molecules. A good example is ayahuasca. Right? Ayahuasca, many people may be familiar with. This is a natural extract of two plant species, one which contains a compound called DMT, another which contains uh, compounds called beta-carbolines, which are monoamine oxidase inhibitors. Um, but there's others too. In, in fact, LSD was originally discovered because it's produced by a certain fungus, right? It actually does also come from nature. 5-MeO-DMT is commonly known to come from um, the venom of a certain species of toad. Uh, there's bufotenin, which is 5-HO-DMT. This comes from various plant species as well. So while magic mushrooms are, are definitely the, the most well-known of all the psychedelics and especially of the natural psychedelics, there's actually a whole untapped universe in terms of clinical development and unexplored potential in the natural psychedelic world. And that's another one of the main reasons why we started the company was because we thought that'd be very important that there'd be somebody out there sort of leveraging this vast untapped potential of the natural psychedelic world. So I want to dive into why it is so untapped. And like I said, there's a lot of misconceptions, obviously, these type of chemical compounds, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna use the D word here, but these kind of chemical compounds have been illegal for so long in so many different areas. And now it feels like that pendulum is swinging the other way, saying, Whoa, maybe we were too quick to judge for the last six, five, six, seven decades. What happened? Lead us through that timeline and what people were thinking, what society was doing. Did we lose our minds and now we're actually coming to get it back? I would probably say we, we lost our minds twice. So back in the day, in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, these compounds, which had been known by indigenous people around the world for ever, essentially, for thousands of years, and then there's documented uh, use of these substances by indigenous people all around the world going back thousands of years, they were nonetheless kind of discovered by Western science and, and Western medicine in the 30s, 40s, and, and, and 50s. And their potential was quite early on um, identified. And early clinical research looked at the use of these substances to help with depression and alcoholism, as, as they called it back in the day, and, and, and usually to, to quite good effect. Importantly, back in those days, we didn't really have as much understanding of modern clinical research methods. So like effective double blinding and like maintaining separation of the administrator and the recipient of the drug. So there's a lot of reports of back in those days of the people giving the drug, taking the drug as well, things that would be like very no-no these days. In addition, the drugs kind of very famously 
were used in very morally questionable experiments. You know, the CIA got into using LSD for mind control and, you know, there were unwitting uh, participants in various experiments in prisons and things like that. Again, all things that would definitely not fly. But probably the most important thing that happened was psychedelics got into the hands of the hippie counterculture. And, you know, famous people got on TV and encouraged young folks to use psychedelics and to question authority. And this was all going during the time of the uh, Vietnam War. And the powers that be at the time decided that they would essentially not quite ban, but almost completely ban psychedelics, right? And a prohibition was put into all federal research money and all this great promise that was shown in in some of the work that was that was being done what was kind of stopped and it really is a shame and so i would say like back to my earlier comment you know society kind of lost its mind twice well yeah a lot of the things that were being done with psychedelics at the time were a little bit crazy but then the pendulum swung definitely way back too far in the other direction with almost complete prohibition on the substances with very, very few exceptions. Um, and that basically put a freeze on everything until the present day. And so now we see a wide kind of reawakening of psychedelic research. And I believe that this is in response to a, a, you know, a number of different factors, notably that there's recognition that the war on drugs has failed. And not only has it failed, but it's probably counterproductive and causes more harm than it does good. And also we see that the mental health crisis is you know, one of the most burning urgencies in our society, if not the most burning urgency, right? When you consider the number of deaths by suicide and overdose, you know, these deaths of despair, as we call it, when you when you consider that the average North American has a 50% chance of having a major mental health crisis by the time they reach the age of 50, when you consider that, you know, the most commonly prescribed antidepressants only have a 30% chance of working in their first course, and then it can take several months just to know whether it's been working. And then after several courses, the average person only has a 60% chance of finding relief using antidepressants, which come with major side effects and downsides and have to be taken very regularly and, and are then difficult to get off of. So when you consider all of these things, they've kind of reached ahead. Plus, you had sort of cannabis legalization, which hasn't caused the sky to fall down or anything like that, right? So, you know, cannabis kind of paved the way in a, in a certain respect. All of these things are kind of combining to have a reawakening of research into psychedelics. Layered on top of that is why is so little known about natural psychedelics? Well, I think you have all of this kind of prohibition, everything that I, that, that I said, you know, applies to both natural and uh, synthetic psychedelics. But in addition, Natural face the additional hurdles of, I would say, you know, pharmaceutical research proclivity to use synthetic standardized single compound substances rather than natural substances, which, which do take a little bit more work in order to manufacture to a pharmaceutically acceptable grade, which is really what Filament, our company, is all about, is getting these natural psychedelics into a pharmaceutically acceptable grade. Benjamin, when we're talking about all these treatments for mental health and the huge mental health crisis right now, and there's massive pharmaceutical companies that are putting their antidepressants in people's medicine cabinets day in and day out, 
And you're coming along saying, you know, I, I have a better solution here from a, a new growing company. Are you sensing any flack from established pharmaceutical companies that they're going to try to come in and squash this research or try to take it over or change it so that they don't lose any money? I think that there's not really a conspiracy to hold back psychedelics, at least not on the part of the uh, pharmaceutical industry. I mean, it, it, it's not really a conspiracy on the part of the government either. They just made laws that essentially made it illegal. It's not a secret conspiracy. It's a an overt <laughs> conspiracy, right? It's pretty on the open. It, yeah. It's pretty on the open, right? You can go read the law that says you can't use it. Although keep in mind that pharmaceutical executives are kind of conservative suit and tie guys from Indiana, they're not the first ones to, you know, jump out and, you know, they're not shamans from the Amazonian jungle, not either. Some pharmaceutical companies have dipped their toes into psychedelics already. Uh, Otsuka, a major Japanese uh, pharma company, has invested in different uh, psychedelics companies. And Janssen actually has an approved product called uh, Esketamine, which is, Spravato is what it's called, is um, S-ketamine, which is a, a closely related compound to ketamine, which is a pretty uh, serious departure from traditional SSRIs. I think that if the industry can continue showing good results and more and interesting results in well-controlled clinical trials, and the governments keep on kind of relaxing regulations and allowing this research to continue and signaling that they would eventually approve one of these traditional psychedelic medicines, I think you will see big pharma jumping in as long as it can be demonstrated that they can make money and, and give people safe and effective products. Remember that FDA has given psilocybin breakthrough therapy designation, right? So, so that means that they've officially said that this is a very promising therapeutic candidate. So that one definite, you know, gold star in support of psilocybin. Well, that's good to hear because I'll, I'll take my tin hat off, make sure that uh, I'm not going to be one of those kooky guys saying, well, wait a minute, why, why haven't we been, you know, why hasn't this been in society? I mean, we talk about, like I said, mental health illness, but uh, I mean, post-traumatic stress disorder. Obviously, we have a very active military and deployments all over the world and service members are right there, you know, not, I don't want to say on the front lines of mental illness, but there's a lot of people who need help. And, you know, PTSD, we didn't know anything about it until like World War One or kind of World War II-ish. I'm thinking, man, there could have been a lot of people that were helped by what you're finding. When you think about the number, if these medicines are proven to be safe and effective, it's almost, un you can't even think about the number of people that may have been helped and the number of patients in dire circumstances that could have been helped but weren't because of prohibition. I, it's not something that I, I, I like to think about because that is, is too depressing. In Canada, where we're located, there is a special program called the Special Access Program. This is a program whereby Canadian patients who are in serious or life-threatening conditions can request access to unapproved, uh, still experimental therapies. And beginning at the uh, last year, in January 2022, the Canadian government said, we're going to allow people to request access to psilocybin and NDMA. And not only did they allow access, they also started approving access. And so we're one of the only companies, if, if maybe the only company who's actually able to distribute psilocybin 
directly to doctors and patients. So we hear every day, uh, we actually were getting reports from a from a special access patient just today about what's happening with them, you know, what condition they're in, what details are are happening. And we hear from doctors and patients the, the good that it can do to severely depressed people and people that are undergoing end of life existential distress. So again, back to your point, like, we don't like to think about all the all the help that could have been done. We just try to focus on, you know, what can we do today? And I think it's a huge point to bring up the fact that there are cases where this this isn't just a concept. This isn't just conceptual thinking and well-wishing. You're putting your product in the hands of people who need it and they're having great results. Like you mentioned, your your friends north of the border there. Where are you with the FDA at this point in time? So we have our main drug development program is in the United States. So we've had a number of meetings with them. We have ongoing clinical trials that are investigating the effects of various of our naturally derived drugs. We've had very positive interactions with, with, with FDA. They, they are on board with our development strategy uh, for depression, for psilocybin, for psilocin, another closely related compound from the magic mushroom. And uh, they're also on board with our botanical approach. So there's a, our, our drugs are designed to leverage a specific pathway at the FDA called botanical drug designation meaning that they are drugs designed to replicate the naturally occurring uh, phytochemical constituents of natural products that have prior documented use in humans, which psychedelics fit very, very well. Uh, So like I said, FDA has been, in all of our interactions, very enthusiastic and and quite on board. Um, Somewhat surprisingly, people might think, but that you know, reporting from first-hand experience, that that's definitely what I have to say. Well, that's good to hear. I, I, I like that, you know, somewhat surprisingly. Now, you're working with University of California, San Francisco, to put these clinical, clinical trials in. And correct me if I'm wrong, but these are the first trials using naturally extracted compounds rather than lab-created synthetic substances, right? That's correct. So we, back in the fall of 2021, we submitted to the FDA uh, a dossier with our drug products to be researched at UCSF, and eventually we got an IND open, and the, the study's been running for the last year or so. The study that's being done is the first to administer naturally derived psychedelic drugs, and it's also the first to administer directly a compound called psilocin. The interesting thing about psilocin is it's actually the active form of psilocybin. Not many people know this, but psilocybin is not actually active in the human body in its own right. It needs to convert into a closely related compound called psilocin, which is actually the serotonin analog and responsible for all of the hallucinogenic and therapeutic effects. But because psilocin is actually quite unstable and difficult to manufacture, especially when it's done synthetically, All research up till now has been done with synthetic psilocybin. But because we're manufacturing these things naturally, we're extracting them from the magic mushroom, we're actually able to come up with a way to manufacture psilocin stably to a pharmaceutical grade 
And by directly administering it, we think that there could be uh, significant advantages compared to giving people psilocybin because you don't have to wait for the conversion to take place. The onset time could be faster because different people have different amounts of the enzymes that do the conversion. We could have a more consistent dose. We think that there could be less gastrointestinal side effect, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the the trial that we have ongoing at, at UCSF is groundbreaking in a number of ways for the fact that it's the first to administer natural psychedelic drugs and the first to directly administer psilocin synthetically or naturally. So I'm curious about your timeline into widespread deployment. Um, there are certain states, uh, Colorado is one of them, that have said, yes, um, we're going to take the shackles off of this. We're going to regulate it. How soon until we start seeing filament health products on the shelves, so to speak? I'm, I'm using quotation here as bunny ears. The important sort of clarifier in that question is through which market, right? So in the pharmaceutical market, it's probably still five years in before we would have a drug approved that can be prescribed by physicians legally. However, as you mentioned, um, it's becoming very clear that these other non-pharmaceutical distribution models will start, will continue to develop. So the first was Oregon, which in 2020 passed a ballot measure leading to actually earlier this year, the state actually having its legalized uh, psilocybin system actually starting up. So now people can actually apply to have a manufacturing license and a service center license to make and distribute psilocybin products, which is fantastic. So what we're doing is we're working with local manufacturing companies in Oregon in order to license them our technology and they can kind of make products under license because the psilocybin is still federally uh, controlled substance. It's not actually legal to, well, it's not actually federally legal to make and sell psilocybin in Oregon either, but it's definitely illegal to have it cross state lines and international borders. Um, (laughs) That's why we provide technology to local companies because all of our knowledge and experience making it for the legal pharmaceutical market in Canada for clinical trials and all these other things is obviously directly applicable to a state level sort of more recreational style market. Same thing will happen in, in Colorado. When, when things develop there a little bit more, we will identify local manufacturing partners who are interested to use our technology under license to make standardized, stable, kind of more pharmaceutical grade natural products for the, for the local market. One, one of the very interesting things about Oregon is that only natural psychedelics are permitted. In fact, only natural psilocybin is permitted. Synthetic psilocybin is actually prohibited from the Oregon market, just as a as an interesting kind of tidbit, kind of in support of our own mission to provide natural psychedelics to everyone who needs them. Yeah, it's interesting. You use the word manufacturing, and, and I, I'm always curious because what I'm thinking of is there's, there's just massive farms growing mushrooms. Is that is that I mean, walk us through the process of how you actually create these compounds, which then you're then able to, you know, extract and and help out and put into people's bodies. Sure. So it, it it all starts with identifying good strains and species of the biomass that you're planning to work with, right? So let's just stay with with magic mushrooms as an example. You know, we had a active growing program. We obviously have a license to grow psilocybin containing mushrooms here in, in this facility. So we, we had a whole program to 
grow and identify the most promising strains of mushrooms in terms of their yield and consistency and, and all these other things. Once that's been identified, we, we grow the mushrooms, you know, using pretty standard substrates and growing media, take a couple weeks to grow, we harvest them, we dry them. Once they're, the dried mushrooms are collected, we grind them into a powder, then they go into our extraction process. In the extraction process, the first step is to do the raw extraction where we remove the target compounds. And then after that, it goes into a purification process, which is, is designed to remove a lot of the undesirable compounds and to increase the purity of the target compounds to a level which then afterwards we can standardize it down to the precise quantity that's needed in order to give a highly standardized dose in a, in a capsule. So once it's in a capsule, it has a, you know, in the case of magic mushrooms or psilocybin, we have different dosage strengths. We have one, five, and 25 milligram capsules. And now it really looks like any other drug or, or pill that, that you're going to take. It has a little white bottle and a label and, and all these different things. And off it goes to different clinical trial sites or to these special access program patients that have been approved by the government to use our psilocybin product. It's fascinating. And the natural processes to me, I'm like, I have a, a relatively runaway imagination. So I'm just thinking of just shelves and shelves and warehousing full of mushrooms growing. And then you're able to get the guys in the white suits and the vials and all that kind of fun stuff. And at the end of the day, this, this, this lovely little pill pops out there that can do a lot of, lot of good. That's, that's pretty much it. I mean, our, <laughs> before we have like widespread legalization and adoption, the scale of our manufacturing doesn't need to be that large uh, because there, there's no legal demand for it, right? We have our, in our facilities, 3,500 square feet. We have about a, probably I'm going to say a 200 or 300 square foot growing room. In that room alone, we can grow enough mushrooms to supply all the clinical trials and SAP exemption patients in the whole world, right? So, wow. you know, some people are like, oh, you know, we got to make this huge grow up and it's going to be cannabis 2.0 and all these different things. And we took a different approach. We focused on manufacturing methods, processes, IP, GMP, standardization, all of these things. And now we have all the processes set. So when things expand, yeah, we'll, we'll be looking to partner with larger scale growing operations. And then again, probably out licensing our technology to other manufacturers who can make, again, make our product under license for us. I, I find it absolutely fascinating. Benjamin, I got to ask about your background. I know you, you've you had some successful companies in the past. Have you always been in this uh, kind of realm of business? Give us a little example, kind of kind of peel back the curtain into, you know, kind of what makes you you and some of the motivations around this. Funnily enough, I've my niche or niche, as we say in Canada, is botanical extraction and the commercialization of novel extra of, of extraction technologies. And I, I fell into it really just by coincidence. I got a summer job during my undergraduate studies working in a facility that was making novel cancer drugs uh, extracted from plants. I ended up working there full time after graduation, ended up leaving that uh, company, getting a business degree, thinking I would get out of the industry, but I didn't. I went back to a, a different company, which was making ingredients, um, extracts for cosmetics and dietary supplements and pharmaceuticals. 
Eventually, I became CEO of that company, and we sold it to a large American food ingredients company. We sold that company in the summer of 2018 for a, a, a decent exit. But then what happened is the team sort of started falling apart because people either didn't like working for the acquirer or they got let go or the, you know something happened. And Filament was really an opportunity to get that same team back together, reprising our exact same roles from the previously exited company. And I think that's what's really given us a really major leg up in this new and nascent industry is that we came together with a bunch of people that already had a lot of respect for each other, had already been through the battles together, already knew you know what their job was and what they had to do, and had already done a lot of similar things together. This industry might be quite different in terms of its regulation and clinical development and all that kind of thing, but at the end of the day, we're making GMP plant extracts, and it's not that different from a lot of other plant extracts that we've made in the past. The other big thing that's different about psychedelics is the potential for them to really do a lot of good in society, right? You know, we've, we've talked about the mental health crisis, making cosmetics ingredients for shinier, healthier looking hair. You know, that's great. And, and people like that and it makes them feel good. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that, especially when we had a process to make those ingredients in a cleaner and better way. But here we have, you know, we're talking about curing people potentially of really debilitating ailments. And it's really just a phenomenal way that we can apply all of the experience that we've gained over the years and the chemistry and the knowledge that we have to a new industry with a, you know, a massive potential to help millions of people around the world. And that's what gets us all very excited every day to come to work and, and work together. I love that. Applying lessons learned in the past, new application, new way to come out and help people. I, uh, I find it all fascinating. So, you know, two more questions for you. The name Filament Health. Give us a little rationale behind why you chose that. So the filaments are the small little pieces of mycelium in a mushroom that kind of reach around together and colonize new pieces of substrate. It's also kind of symbolizes, you know, the interconnectedness of all beings and kind of like, you know, we're all part of a mycelial web working together on this. So a little bit more hippy dippy. But then also the filament is the thing on the inside of the Edison light bulb that lights up when you have a good idea. Right. So um, it's kind of a play on words of both of those things. Also, every psychedelics company has like either PSY or mind or remind or return or reset or psi this or psi that we wanted something that was a little bit different that would stick out in people's minds plus the domain was available so that's good too <laughs> that always helps uh in startups uh trust me on that one helping doctors launch their practices and what we do and i'm like well that url is for sure gone so let's get a little bit more creative about yes, it but exactly. still but still yeah. usable and, and easy <laughs> enough all right last question for you all right this is the real tough one you mentioned at the beginning of this episode how indigenous people had known about these things for so long you know years and years and years before you know european and western medicine came along Put yourself in the shoes of that very first person who looked at these mushrooms and said, this is a good idea to eat this. What was going through their mind? And would you have been that person? Would you have, would you have popped that thing in your mouth? That's a great question. And it's a great thing to think about. You know, one thing to consider is that, you know, 
indigenous people, and these are people all around the world. It doesn't matter whether you're in the West, you know, there was ancient Greeks, you know, running around looking at what were the plants that grew in their, in their local area. Human beings have always turned to nature for their food, their medicine, and for their recreational substances, right? We've only had synthetic drug manufacturing for the last generously couple hundred years. And so these kind of like traditional indigenous doctor, shaman, chemists, they would have had to eat a lot of mushrooms uh, in order to find (laughs) out which one was psychedelic and which one was poisonous, which one killed you, (laughs) and which one was just like shiitakes and good with your, you know, meat or whatever it was. Um, I think the most fascinating example of this, and maybe maybe it's a bit of a long-winded one, but is ayahuasca. Because ayahuasca is actually two different extracts given together. One of them contains DMT, the psychedelic molecule. But the problem with DMT is that when you consume it orally, it's not bioavailable. It degrades almost instantly in your body and you don't get any effects. That's why people might use DMT. They might vaporize it or smoke it because that way it is bioavailable. But with ayahuasca, you get a second extract which contains these compounds called monoamine oxidase inhibitors, right? That's what we call them now. But the monoamine oxidase inhibitors actually block the enzyme which breaks down the DMT when you consume it orally. So these ancient chemist, traditional ayahuasca shaman people were actually able to discover something that's relatively advanced in modern chemistry, that this one plant is only bioactive if you consume it with this other plant. And wow. I, that story is just so amazing to me. It's just not only did we go and consume a little piece of literally everything in the jungle, but we also consumed a combination of everything that we could find, right? Just think about it for a second. How many permutations and combinations are there of everything? Well, and going back to what you said about the bear attacks, you know, early on, it's like, well, we we remember this, and we can't just be like, oh, I, I I'm terrified of this. The bear might jump out anywhere. But looking at different berries, looking at different mushrooms, and then this one and this one are okay together, but not that one. And then if you do this two or these three together, but definitely stay away from this one over here. I always, I, I don't know why I always think about, you know, like when we when we find things that are poisonous or find things that are really really good or recipes and and how you brew beer and how you distill alcohol and all these different things. They've been around for so long. I'm like, my God, that had to be a lot of trial and error. And I feel bad for the guys that got it wrong because obviously. Well, we don't we don't have their story uh, because uh, history is written by the victor. Right. Oh, and, in, you know, other examples, right, like of these natural compounds that are, you know, caffeine is highly toxic to small pests and to aphids and stuff. But it for larger species like bees and humans, it actually helps your memory. So if you're a bee, you can have the caffeine and it'll help you remember how to get back to that plant to pollinate it more. So it's miraculous stuff that we're only just sort of scratching the surface. And when people say like, well, it's a bit weird to make natural pharmaceuticals, we go, well, actually, that's the way that humans have been doing it forever. It's actually weird to make pharmaceuticals synthetically. Yeah, chemicals and everything's probably petroleum-based because everything else is in our world these days. But Nature works in mysterious ways. Benjamin Lightburn, co-founder, CEO, Filament Health. Thanks for joining us here on Healthcare Americana. I I thoroughly enjoyed that conversation. You're very welcome. It was a pleasure to be on. That's going to do it for this episode of Healthcare Americana. If you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. Check us out online at healthcareamericana.com to catch previous episodes. Subscribe to our mailing list and visit our online store. Once again, I am your host, Christopher Habig. 
Thanks for listening. Check out healthcareamericana.com to hear all our episodes, visit the shop, and learn more about the podcast. Healthcare Americana is produced by Taylor Scott and iPodcast Pro and managed by Melissa Turpin. Healthcare Americana is brought to you by Freedom HealthWorks and Freedom Doc. If you've been struggling to get the care you need and the access you want, it's time to join your local Freedom Doc. Visit freedomdoc.care to find the practice location nearest you. Whether you're a patient, employer, or physician, the Free Market Medical Association can facilitate and assist you in your free market healthcare journey. The foundation of our association is built upon three pillars, price, value, and equality, with complete transparency in everything we do. Our goal is simple, match willing buyers with willing sellers of valuable healthcare services. Join us and help accelerate the growth of the free market healthcare revolution. For more information on the Free Market Medical Association, visit fmma.org. Hi again, everyone. This is Chris. At Healthcare Americana, we're always on the lookout for great stories to tell in the healthcare industry. And we'd like to hear yours. Check out healthcareamericana.com and send us your ideas for episodes or if you'd like to be a guest. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoy it.